You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. You're listening to Sarah and Josh talk about drones. I'm Sarah Baxenberg, and I'm here with Josh Turner. And today we are talking about remote ID, which is a concept that has been lighting up drone Twitter and is the talk of the drone community over the past couple of weeks, um, the last week of 2019 and the first week of the new year. So Sarah, what is remote ID and why is everyone talking about it all of a sudden? So remote ID describes technology that enables either other aircraft in the airspace or a person on the ground to receive information that allows that person to remotely identify the identity of the aircraft, the position of the aircraft, or the identity of the operator while the drone is in flight. So UAS, or drones, unmanned aircraft systems, are uh, really small aircraft, you know, typically in the in the common usage that we're seeing today. And so as a result of that, you know, they look really small when they're up in the sky, and it's hard to figure out if you see one flying above at 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet. You can't really discern anything about about who it belongs to or what it's doing there or why it's in the airspace. So remote ID gives a way to remotely identify the identity of the aircraft and the operator. Yeah. And the analogy here is to the tail number that you see painted on civilian aircraft, the N number that is usually used. But as you point out, typically UAS is quite small and painting the N number or painting the registration number on the drone would be almost useless. You'd have to have a pretty powerful telescope to see it. Well, you still have to put it on there under FAA regulations, but it is useless as a way to identify the drone or the operator while the drone's in flight. And the reason everyone is talking about it all of a sudden is because the FAA has finally released a highly anticipated and long-awaited Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, or NPRM, that uh, proposes remote ID rules for the entire industry. Yeah, and the hope with this, and the reason that it has been so long anticipated, is that it'll solve a number of different problems that have been sort of plaguing the industry. It's always a surprise, I think, uh, when people realize that there isn't a current way to remotely identify who is operating a UAS that's flying overhead. And that's led to a lot of confusion. It's led to a lot of consternation by people on the ground. And in fact, just this week, there was a story in the New York Times about some drones that are flying over Colorado and Nebraska. Uh, and the the residents are, are a little bit confused and consternated because they don't know who's operating those drones. And so the, the problems that remote ID is designed to solve have to do first with aircraft safety, as you point out, It's a building block component to something called unmanned traffic management, which will ultimately allow drones to interact with one another in the airspace and deconflict with one another so that they don't run into each other. There's also a security component if you are managing security at a facility like a stadium or something like that. You want to know who's flying drones overhead and you want to be able to uh, identify who are the the good guys, the, the clueless people, and maybe the bad actors. So it'll help with that. And because of those two, the safety and the security piece, uh, it has been seen as the keystone to expanded operations going forward. There's all sorts of things that you can't do with drones that 
ultimately people want to be able to do with drones to make them really fulfill their potential. And one of them is operating over crowds of people or, or other kinds of uh, property like that. Uh, another one is beyond visual line of sight operations, right? Flying a drone beyond the range of the operator. Neither of those two things are currently authorized under Part 107, which is the most common way for people to fly drones these days. And the hope is that the FAA has said this in, in the context of their operations over people rulemaking. Remote ID is the sine qua non of moving forward with all of those. You have to have it before you can move forward. The hope is now that we have a process in place, the FAA will be able to move forward with these expanded operations. But it's been a long time coming because three years ago, almost to the day, because it was supposed to coincide with the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, which is about to kick off next week, the FAA was supposed to release it's NPRM on flights over people. The conference came and went and that didn't happen. And it turned out that the FAA had kind of been held up by these security and safety concerns, mostly by security stakeholders at the federal government level, other federal agencies that have security interests. And it that concept emerged then that the FAA would not be able to move on with any expanded rulemaking, any expanding Part 107 past what it already allows to allow the types of operations that you mentioned. Um, until there was some kind of remote ID policy in place. Uh, so that was at the end of 2016, early 2017. Um, and, you know, it's been three years before before we saw an NPRM on this. And I think there are a few reasons that it's been such a long time coming to get here. One of the the biggest things is the FAA needed a legislative fix in order to have the requisite statutory authority to move forward and to propose a remote ID system that would apply to the entire UAS industry. So back in 2012, when Congress first mandated that the FAA integrate drones into the airspace, they included a carve out for model aircraft, which, you know, at the time was intended to only apply to this very small community of highly responsible and very active recreational aircraft users, but it morphed into this really, really big hurdle for the FAA because it divested the agency of regulatory authority over all UAS being operated for recreational use that met certain requirements. And the DC Circuit ended up invalidating some FAA rules that tried to impose registration requirements on hobbyist drones. And so there was this big roadblock standing in the way because the FAA didn't have the authority to actually apply a remote ID system to hobbyists. And it became understood fairly quickly when remote ID emerged as this big regulatory bottleneck that we would need a way to implement a remote ID system that applied broadly to the whole UAS community, that it just wouldn't work if thousands and eventually maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of aircraft were not included in the remote ID requirements because it would just completely undermine the whole purpose, which is to be able to look up in the sky, use some sort of equipment and figure out who's flying there and whether they're allowed to be there. Right. And so that was fixed ultimately in 2018. And the Congress enacted uh, as part of the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018, they plugged that hole uh, and basically gave the FAA authority over all UAS, including the what, what had been hobbyist UAS, and allowed the FAA to enact regulations, including remote ID over those stakeholders. Why it's taken another year for us to get where we are today is a little bit of a mystery. Certainly, there have been dates that have come and gone where we expected this NPRM to come out. And in fact, it became something of a joke in the UAS community that every time a, a date was scheduled, that it would be pushed off for another three months. And there were some people saying that that even when this most recent date was announced, uh, that it was likely that it would get pushed again. But it didn't. 
And whatever the reasons were that were holding it up and the security concerns that were presumably part of that have presumably been resolved. And now we have the NPRM, which was published in the Federal Register on December 31st, right at the end of 2019. Comments are due March 2nd. And so the entire community is now looking at the NPRM, trying to digest it, figure out what it is the FAA is proposing to do. And we're here to help you understand what the FAA has proposed and and where comments might be helpful. So Sarah, let's talk a little bit about what's in the NPRM itself. What kind of remote ID have they proposed? The FAA proposes to establish two different categories of remote ID, and that is standard remote ID and limited remote ID. Standard remote ID would be a system that is required to transmit identifying information about the aircraft and the control station over two different methods of transmission. Broadcasting using unlicensed spectrum under Part 15 of the FCC's regulations, and then also transmission via an internet connection to what's called a UAS service supplier or USS. Limited remote ID would only require and, in fact, only permit the latter. So the drone would only uh, transmit the information via an Internet connection to a USS and would not be allowed to broadcast. Uh, Standard remote ID could be operated beyond visual line of sight, you know, with the appropriate FAA authorization, whereas limited remote ID could only be operated within visual line of sight and the aircraft would have to be designed so that it couldn't go further than 400 feet away from the control station, away from the person operating it. Right. And the key point with limited remote ID is that the aircraft itself wouldn't be reporting any positional data. It would just be the position of the control station, which is the reason for the limitation on flying no more than 400 feet away from the control station. Presumably, if the law enforcement could find the control station, the the drone would not be far away. And so the idea under either one of these is that the drone, as you said, will connect through the internet to a remote ID service supplier and will make that remote ID information available over the internet. And I think critically here, it's important to understand that the FAA is not proposing to have a broadcast-only standard. There isn't a standard proposed that would allow you to fly a compliant aircraft just broadcasting over unlicensed spectrum from the aircraft itself. Either limited remote ID or standard remote ID requires some sort of internet connection and some sort of attempt to make that information available over the internet. We'll talk a little bit about the details of that in a second because there are some exceptions that are important. But the remote ID unmanned aircraft service suppliers um, will have contracts with the FAA to supply these services. But at least as far as the NPRM goes, the FAA is pretty agnostic on the business models for those service suppliers. It could be a standalone USS or more than one. And I think the FAA has in mind that there will be at least 10. Or it could be, and and that could be subscriber-based. So you would have to sign up with the, the service supplier yourself and actually um, you know, either give them information, personal information, or give them uh, you know, a monthly fee subscription. Or it could be that a drone manufacturer offers those services for its drones or for everyone's drones. Uh, or it could be some combination of those things, or it could be none of those things. The FAA sort of uh, threw this out there and said, we anticipate that people will want to provide this service. We anticipate because there are people that are providing similar services in, in Lance, uh, in airspace authorization that those people might also want to do remote ID work as well, or that new players will come in and provide uh, uh, those services using an an analogous business model. 
one thing that uh, makes people a little nervous when they think about remote ID is they assume there's going to be a lot of personal information about themselves that is just broadcast over the airways for anybody to pick up. But I think in reality, it's not really a cause for concern. What does the NPRM say there? Well, yeah. And, and that is an area where I think people have been a little bit worried about what the FAA would share. The idea here is that the uh, remote ID information would have to have the location data on the aircraft or the control station, depending, or or maybe both for standard remote ID. Um, it would have to have the aircraft serial number or what the FAA calls a session ID, which would be a randomly generated number for every flight that the remote ID service supplier would be able to associate with the serial number, but would not broadcast the serial number. And then it would need to, to have altitude data, and there may be some ad additional data as well that isn't personally identifiable. But the key point here is that the only entity that would be able to associate the serial number or the session ID with the registration data, right? So the personal information about who actually owns the drone, the only person that would be able to do that would be the FAA or authorized law enforcement or security entities that the FAA had given access to. You wouldn't have your name and address being blasted out over the airwaves or on the internet by default. If the you know security agencies or law enforcement agencies wanted to find you, they'd have to come and, and associate that data and correlate that data on the back end. You know, one thing that I've seen, and, and there's been a lot of uh, sort of chatter back and forth on Twitter and elsewhere about what's in the NPRM. And one thing that I've seen some confusion about is this question about whether or not you can fly only where there's internet coverage. As I said sort of a few minutes ago, both standard and limited remote ID contemplate a connection to the internet and providing information over the internet. But it is not the case that you can only fly where you have internet coverage or where you have an internet connection if you're using a standard remote ID vehicle. Now keep in mind a standard remote ID vehicle also has the capability, must have the capability to broadcast over unlicensed spectrum from the aircraft, the remote ID information. And so what the FAA has said is, if you have one of these standard remote ID aircrafts and you don't have internet coverage, right? If there's not cellular coverage in the area in which you're located, for example, you can still take off as long as the aircraft is capable of broadcasting the remote ID signal over its broadcast equipment. That was not true for limited remote ID because limited remote ID is connected only through the internet and doesn't have that broadcast capability. The FAA has said that if you're flying a limited remote ID aircraft and you can't have an internet connection or you can't make internet connection, then you can't take off. And in fact, there are some requirements about production that would disable the, the vehicle and require it to not be able to take off in those kinds of circumstances. And then there are proposed rules for what you do when you lose connectivity in flight that mirror the rules for taking off. So if you've got a standard remote ID UAS and you lose connection to the internet while you're in flight, you can continue to operate as long as you still have that broadcast capability. Whereas with a limited remote ID drone, which as you mentioned, its only connection is via the internet. If you lose connection to the internet or to the USS somehow, uh, you have to land as soon as practicable. Right. And, and one of the things that jumps out at you as you read the NPRM is that um, the FAA talks about connections to the internet. It doesn't really talk specifically about how those connections are going to be established or how those connections are going to be made. And that's a deliberate choice on the part of the FAA. They're, they're remaining agnostic about exactly how you connect to the internet and what sort of mechanism uh, you might use to do that. 
There have been some folks online, I think, who've been suggesting that you would need to have uh, some sort of separate internet data package for each drone that you flew. And there's nothing in the NPRM that would require that. In fact, what the NPRM really seems to contemplate is that there would be some sort of pairing relationship between the drone and the control station or a smartphone or both. And the drone would transmit its remote ID information via that pairing relationship, and then the smartphone would use its data connection to transmit it onto the internet. So in, in practical terms, you may have some sort of Bluetooth or similar Wi-Fi connection between your aircraft and the control station. The control station may then be connected to your smartphone. Your smartphone is connected to the internet. And through that chain, the aircraft is able to deliver the remote ID positional data and fly. And I think another important thing to keep in mind, and we'll get into the manufacturer requirement shortly, but all of this falls on the manufacturer. So it's not going to be your obligation as an operator to figure out whether there is some internet connection somewhere that you could possibly connect to. Like, oh, should I put in my Comcast password and like use the Xfinity hotspot or whatever? It's all going to be done at the manufacturer level so that the aircraft, the drone, the system will tell you whether or not you have an internet connection or not. And it won't be your obligation as an operator to find one. Right. And one um, thing to keep in mind is that while with standard remote ID, you will be able to fly if you don't have an internet connection. One thing the NPRM does say is if you have an internet connection and you can't make a connection through the internet to the USS, to the remote ID service supplier, then you won't be able to take off. The FAA is encouraging everyone to use remote ID as much as it possibly can and wants to make sure that the, the exceptions for when you fly without using internet-enabled remote ID are as narrow as possible. And they are making a concession. They realize that there are going to be some missions that you fly where you're not going to be around cell phone coverage. You aren't going to be able to establish internet connection and you are going to need to be able to fly your drone in those circumstances. But they want those circumstances to be as narrow as possible and they don't want you to use the excuse, oh, well, I couldn't make a connection to my remote ID service supplier, but I decided to fly anyway. They want to narrow that exception as much as they can. The one other interesting thing that that jumps out at you as you read the NPRM is the vast majority of these technical requirements are left, as I said, agnostic. The, the FAA doesn't really express an opinion about how they should be done, with the exception of the spectrum that is designated for the broadcast remote ID component. There, as I think you mentioned at the top of the podcast, the FAA requires you to use unlicensed Part 15 spectrum, which is Part 15 of Title 47 of the FCC's regulations. And the answer there is probably the same thing as what we just talked about, right? Which is they want to make sure that this is widely available, that it's not confined to any particular network or any particular type of network, and that anyone who has a, a smart device with the kind of application that would be used for discerning these remote ID messages is able to, to pick those up and detect them. So that's what remote ID does and, and, and FAA's vision for how remote ID will work. Let's talk a little bit now about who all of these obligations will apply to. Um, and there's basically three different categories. There are the producers of the UAS, there are the operators of the UAS, and then there are the remote ID service suppliers. Sarah, what kind of obligations um, do the manufacturers have under the proposed rules? So the NPRM looks to require manufacturers of UAS to equip those UAS with either standard or limited remote ID and to meet a number of requirements. And that requirement is going to apply to the vast majority of UAS. There's only a few 
uh, types of UAS that wouldn't be required to be equipped with remote ID. Um, those that don't fall under the rule uh, include UAS under 0.55 pounds because they aren't required to be registered with the FAA. And then the rules also state that manufacturers would not have to quit, equip drones with remote ID if the drones are um, like owned and operated by the U.S. government or are built exclusively for the purpose of certain types of aeronautical research or to demonstrate regulatory compliance. And in order to meet the FAA's requirements, there'll be a few things that manufacturers have to do. The first is that they have to build the drone with remote ID capability in conformance with what is called an FAA-approved means of compliance. So that is a you know kind of protocol for building remote ID into a drone that has been approved by the FAA. You have to be sure when you submit a means of compliance that you include like the proper documentation and substantiation to show that it meets all of the performance requirements for um, remote ID. And there's a number of them that are proposed by the NPRM that really range in terms of how specific they are. So there are speed, latency, and accuracy requirements that give specific numbers, for instance, how often the remote ID message needs to be broadcast or um, how accurate the location information has to be within a certain number of feet. And then there are also some requirements that the NPRM proposes that are a lot more general, such as including cybersecurity protections or measures to make the remote ID system tamper-proof or tamper-resistant. So there's a, a number of these performance requirements that you have to ensure your system meets. You have to show the FAA how you're going to do that, and then the FAA approves your means of compliance. As we talked about, you'll have to issue each UAS a serial number. You'll have to also label the aircraft with the type of remote ID that it is using, either limited or standard. And then you also will have to submit a declaration of compliance for each aircraft or, you know, one declaration that lists a series of serial numbers that comply with the means of compliance that you've already gotten approved by the FAA. And then that declaration of compliance also has to be approved um, by the FAA. So a lot of steps involved in order to get from these rules going into effect to having a drone you can buy off the shelf that's remote ID compliant. Now, and it's interesting that the FAA is being um, pretty hands-off here in terms of developing the the way in which you show that you're compliant with the um, FAA's rules. This is what the FAA calls performance-based rulemaking. It sets a standard and says, show us how you're going to meet the standard and do it to our satisfaction. The FAA is going to, as you mentioned, review each one of these means of compliance and pass on them, essentially say, yes, that works or no, it doesn't. And so that's going to be, I bet, a bit of an iterative process. Now, the goal here is to have, uh, certainly the FAA believes, is to have a standard setting body come in and do most of that work for them, right? So the standard setting body comes in and says, here's what remote ID looks like. Here's how a remote ID compliant aircraft works. You show that you're compliant with the standard and you show how the standard is compliant with the FAA's rules and the FAA approves that means of compliance and then presumably would approve a declaration of compliance that goes along with it. But that whole process of figuring out what the means of compliance looks like and making sure that the FAA is comfortable with it, that could take a while too. And it's not clear to me from the NPRM whether all of that is going to happen in tandem with the the rulemaking process or more likely if the rules are going to go into effect and only then are we going to sort of work through what a means of compliance looks like. And so there could be some additional delays that come from that. And if standards bodies aren't quick to jump on developing those means of compliance, 
you aren't really going to learn anything from the first six months to a year of the process because you'll have a lot of companies developing their own proprietary means of compliance that aren't going to be publicly available. Right. Now, the good news is there is a lot of work that has been going on in the standard setting bodies um, that tries to define what remote ID looks like and, and what a compliant remote ID would be. Um, and so presumably some of those standards will be instrumental in terms of meeting these means of compliance. But you're right. Um, if you don't have uh, transparency and if you don't have sort of people getting quick off the line to get these things approved, there may be some additional delay that comes from people struggling to define for the FAA what a, an operable standard looks like. Speaking of operating, um, what kind of obligations are on the operators in the NPRM? So as we discussed when we were talking about the manufacturer requirements, once these rules go into effect and the compliance deadlines have passed, the vast majority of UAS that are manufactured for use in the United States will need to be equipped with remote ID. Um, the rules apply to all UAS that are required to be registered by FAA regulations and also all foreign registered uh, UAS that are uh, used for civil use, so non-public, non-government use. Um, and the UAS that are required to be registered, as we mentioned, are all UAS above 0.55 pounds, except for those belonging to uh, the U.S. Armed Forces. So we mentioned that there were a couple of other exceptions from the requirements to manufacture drones with UAS, and those included other UAS of the federal government and UAS that are built specifically for certain types of aeronautical research or to show regulatory compliance. So for those categories of UAS, as well as amateur built UAS and UAS that were manufactured before the compliance deadlines went into effect, um, that will be the universe of UAS that you'll see that don't have remote ID capability or don't need to have remote ID capability. And under what circumstances you can fly those drones really varies depending on, on what the use is. So the NPRM proposes to establish this new category of flying sites called FAA-recognized identification areas. Those would be applied for by uh, CBOs, community-based organizations, which are basically model model aircraft organizations that are approved by the FAA. They could apply to have these sites designated. And at those sites, you could operate UAS that don't have remote ID capability that fall into those categories I mentioned. So amateur built, pre-compliance deadline, UAS of the federal government, and UAS uh, that are built for certain types of aeronautical research and regulatory compliance. You would have to do the operations within visual line of sight um, and there would be a finite number of these uh, these FRIAs, FAA-recognized identification areas. So the FAA anticipates it would give a 12-month window where the CBOs could apply for them uh, and have them designated. And after that, the number of FRIAs that exist across the country could only stay the same or decrease. And they would expire after every four years or so. There's an ability to renew. But the idea is that over time, they would become less and less necessary because remote ID would become a very accessible technology. Right. And, and so this is uh, part of the FAA's goal to get rid of non-compliant aircraft, to get rid of non-compliant operations, to make those operations as limited, limited as possible and confined to specific geographic areas to the extent that they are going to exist. And that's going to be frustrating, I know, for, for a lot of people who just want to fly their home-built airplanes. But as the FAA points out in the NPRM, and Sarah, you made this point earlier, 
and the the whole idea behind remote ID as a compliance mechanism and as a safety and security mechanism is that it only works if you have almost total compliance or almost total cooperation by the aircraft community. If there's a huge category of of aircraft that are not covered by the remote ID rules or that aren't broadcasting remote ID or or transmitting remote ID information, that's a that's a hole that that jeopardizes the entire system because it produces confidence in law enforcement or the securities uh, agency's ability to determine who is flying a drone and for what purpose. And I also mentioned, so we've got the FRIAs. Those are sites where you can operate drones that aren't equipped with remote ID. And then the FAA also envisions that two of those categories I mentioned that don't need to be produced with remote ID, so federal government drones and UAS that are built for certain aeronautical research or regulatory compliance purposes, the FAA envisions that it could also authorize those to be operated outside of a FRIA without remote ID, um, but doesn't provide really any detail on the circumstances under which that would be authorized and what the applicants would need to show to get approval. So that process would probably be a bit of a black box. So the third category of entities that are covered by the NPRM or that are sort of within the scope of the NPRM are the people that we've been talking about already, the remote ID service suppliers. And we've already spent a fair amount of time talking about what those remote ID service suppliers would do and how they would be organized. The the important takeaway for me in reading the NPRM is that the FAA really doesn't want to put a lot of constraints on what those UAS service suppliers do. The FAA says we're going to have some additional requirements and we're going to have some additional regulations about how these things are done, but all of that's going to be done through our contracting authority. And the FAA is going to sign a memorandum of agreement with each one of these USS, and that memorandum of agreement may contain additional requirements that the USS has to maintain or has to comply with in order to maintain its contract. But we don't know what those are, and that isn't something that is carefully detailed or explained in the NPRM. There's sort of more to come on that front. But we do have a model for that in terms of how that process will work and has worked in the past, as you mentioned, with Lance, which allows UAS operators to get authorization to fly in controlled airspace in real time. The FAA was really successful in deploying that system relatively quickly and using the service supplier model to do it. So entering into these contracts with specific entities and then allowing them to provide the services. Right. And and it seems quite likely that the entities that are already providing Lance coverage uh, or Lance services uh, are sort of natural candidates to come in and be remote ID, USS as well. But you can imagine that there would be others who would do that. And as I think I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, one way in which that could happen is that the drone manufacturer itself could offer remote ID services and could do that either to everyone or to just people who had bought their drones. And the FAA explicitly acknowledges that that's one way in which this could get done and maybe could get done at a lower cost to the consumer. One thing that's important to remember, too, and this has been, you've seen this uh, on the internet in a number of places, the FAA at the end of all of the all of this and the NPRM says, okay, here's our regulatory evaluation. Here's the costs and benefits of the rule that we're proposing. And as part of that, it has to quantify the costs that are imposed by this rule on society at large and on the various different categories of folks who are covered by the rule. And in that analysis, it says, we anticipate or we predict, you know, that USS providers will charge something like $2.50 or $30 a year for 
the USS service. And a number of folks have picked up on that and said, well, this is a the mandate that the agency is imposing on the public, requiring people to subscribe to these services. But it's important to keep in mind that that is uh, a regulatory prediction that the FAA is making. It isn't a requirement or even a recommendation about how the uh, business model should be arranged. And it's quite likely that there will be people who provide the service at a lower cost, although we don't know for sure, uh, or maybe maybe even at no cost at all, depending on on how those business models work out. So that's a summary, I think, of who's covered by the rule, what the rule requires, and you know the sort of general outlines of what the FAA has got in mind. Let's spend a few minutes just talking about what the likely sticking points or points of contention are as we go through the rulemaking process and people submit their comments in March. What do you think are, are some of the areas where people are going to be frustrated or unable to, to understand what the FAA is doing or, or disagreeing with what the FAA has in mind? I think the conversation will certainly develop as, you know, everyone starts to understand the proposed rules a little better and understand what they do and what they do not do. But I think one thing that's certainly going to be a sticking point for the industry is the proposed compliance timelines. And the NPRM proposes a 24-month timeline for manufacturer compliance and a 36-month timeline for operator compliance. So that's three years from the date that the final rules go into effect. And if we anticipate roughly a year between uh, when the NPRM was released and when we might see final rules, which is pretty speedy by agency regulatory timelines, then a 60-day period before the rules become effective, and then 36 months after that, you're looking at, you know, four to five years before you actually see full remote ID implementation. And I think that's going to be challenging for the industry because if security stakeholders really do believe that this needs to be in place in order to allow expanded operations, it really raises the question of, so when will we see those expanded operations? And you know, the NPRM acknowledges this and tries to think about what are incentives for early compliance and, and you know, um, questions of that nature. But ultimately, if the full implementation is going to occur along that timeline, I think that could be an area of concern for the industry. Yeah, it's it's been a long time coming, and it sounds like it's going to be a long time coming still, and that certainly will be an area that a lot of people are focused on. I think another area that that people are going to spend a lot of time thinking about is the question of what to do with existing drones and retrofits. The FAA has some uh, analysis that it has done in the NPRM that sort of is based on its own analysis of information that it has and information that it's gotten through publicly available sources, and has made some predictions about. Um, how many, what percentage of the current existing drone fleet can be retrofitted to be compliant with remote ID? And keeping in mind that that compliant in this case may mean uh, limited remote ID compliance, right? So that the aircraft itself is not broadcasting anything, um, but the control station is is transmitting its location over the internet. And, you know, the FAA makes some fairly bold predictions about how uh, how many aircraft or what percentage of the aircraft will be capable of retrofitting. But that the data that it's got that it bases those predictions on is pretty soft. And I think one of the things that you'll see as this rulemaking moves on is that there is going to be an effort to supplement the record and to give the FAA a better sense of how many drones really can be retrofitted and what is realistic from that standpoint. Because I know there are going to be a lot of people out there who say, hey, I just bought a drone or I bought a drone a couple of years ago. And now you're telling me that I'm going to be confined to a FRIA, you know, one of these uh, federally recognized areas 
uh, and won't be able to fly anywhere else. Won't be able to go down to the park or, or do what else I want to do with it and have to, to buy it and replace it with a new drone. The FAA makes a number of, of assumptions too about sort of lifespan of drones, how long it is that you would own a drone before you would replace it and presumably replace it with a, a remote ID compliant unit. That may also be an area where people look at it and they say, you know, look, those just really aren't realistic assumptions about lifespan of the drones. I think another area where you might see a lot of discussion is on the proposal surrounding connectivity. So we kind of walked through how standard remote ID have to broadcast and use the internet and uh, limited remote ID would only use an internet connection and transmit to the USS. And I think you might see um, a fair bit of commentary in the record about the technical considerations, interference concerns, and things of that nature surrounding the different methods that are proposed. Yeah. And, and going to that, one of the things that I think was a surprise to some people was that the FAA proposed two different kinds of remote ID, but both of those kinds of remote ID require some level of internet connectivity in order to work. There isn't a model that just allows pure broadcast from the aircraft itself over unlicensed frequency or otherwise in order to comply with the remote ID standard. And that I know was something that that had been proposed as part of the ARC back a couple of years ago um, for certain types of aircraft, certain sort of low performance types of aircraft. Yeah, the uh, ARC was the aviation rulemaking committee that the FAA put together once remote ID became an issue in conformance with a statutory mandate from 2016. So they put the, together this committee of stakeholders to advise them in 2017 on potential remote ID solutions. And one of the recommendations they made was for, you know, your standard operations under Part 107 within visual line of sight and out of our people, the operator should be able to choose between broadcasting and internet. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that the FAA has rejected that as a possibility. I think, you know, this goes again to the universality component that the FAA is trying to get. Um, they really would prefer that as a default, all of this information be contained or available through a single portal on the internet and that you not have to be local in order to figure out what is going on in a particular area. And so that would be my best guess about why it's not included. But it's one proposal that may you may see some people commenting on and saying, no, you should bring that back, FAA, because that's a better way of doing it uh, for certain types of operations. The other thing I think that you might see some comment on is this business models for USS. Um, you know, as we just talked about, the FAA is very agnostic on that and predicts that there will be sort of a thousand flowers blooming in terms of how these services are offered. But it's been a real flashpoint in terms of reaction to the NPRM, seeing people talk about having to subscribe to or pay money to a service supplier. give their personal data away to. Right. I mean, there's there's a lot of people who are really concerned about that. And one question that's been raised uh, in initial conversations is, you know, is this going to lead to a compliance problem? Because you have these these hurdles that you have to overcome in order to subscribe, or you may have these hurdles that you need to overcome in order to subscribe to one of these services, information you have to give away, money you have to give away. Are people going to find a way to defeat that and simply fly without remote ID? Now, the FAA says uh, aircraft have to be tamper resistant and you have to manufacture them in such a way that they won't fly if the remote ID has been tampered with. But you know these are all software issues that can be fairly readily dealt with online. And so if you have too high a burden in terms of uh, the remote ID service, you may see people deciding that they're just not going to do that and that they're going to go around it. So that may be an area where you see some people commenting, and it may be something that that only time will tell whether satisfactory business models emerge or whether there needs to be additional oversight on the part of the FAA in terms of deciding how these kinds of um, services will be supplied. 
So I think that's it. I mean, I think that that covers pretty well what the NPRM covers, what remote ID is, what the FAA has got in mind. Uh, I think it covers, you know, some of the first things that we noticed that might be a, a problem or might cause concern or comment um, by by other folks. But certainly there may be others as we move on. This was a 300 some page document and um, it's got a lot of detail in it and a lot of uh, facts and figures that need to be dug into. Um, I know there are a lot of folks out there that have expertise on particular areas of this who are going to look at the NPRM and be either impressed or not impressed and want to share their opinions with the FAA. So we have a couple of months now, 60 days in which to do that. And, uh, you know, we look forward to seeing what people have to say on the NPRM. This has been Sarah and Josh Talk About Drones. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected Podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.